The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. We share a culture inundated with information and worried about aging and forgetting. With that in mind, it will come as a surprise to hear that the latest research in neuroscience reveals that forgetting is not only normal, but beneficial to our functioning on many levels. We are so fortunate to have as our guest and expert today, the man behind the findings, Dr. Scott Small, esteemed neurologist and neuroscientist known for his work in Alzheimer's disease and cognitive aging, and the author of a compelling new book, Forgetting. The Benefits of Not Remembering. Dr. Scott will be discussing many topics from the book, including why we need to forget in order to function, how our brain turns memory and forgetting on and off, the relationship between sleep and forgetting, forgetting and PTSD, and the difference between cognitive aging and Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Scott Small is the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University, where he is the Boris and Rose Katz Professor of Neurology. He is also appointed in radiology and in psychiatry, where he directs the Schizophrenia Research Center. Dr. Small has developed high-resolution functional MRI applications that can pinpoint the areas of the hippocampus most affected by aging and disease, which has led to testing therapeutic interventions for Alzheimer's disease, cognitive aging, and schizophrenia. He has authored more than 140 papers and is the inventor of 10 patents. Dr. Scott Small, it is my great privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure to, to uh, participate, and thank you for inviting me. Okay. So let's start with the question that I know you even mention in the book. If I'm a law student or a sports trivia enthusiast, why would I want to forget anything? Would I want a photographic <laughs> memory? Uh, you might think you would want that. It might be beneficial in, in some instances. Uh, but it turns out that if you would have a true photographic memory where you can remember everything, not just sports or legal torts, you would live a miserably lonely and unhappy life. Really? Why? Well, the, the why is really the essence of the book, and I'll yes. start off by saying that uh, I, too, uh, was a bit surprised. Uh, I've dedicated my career under the assumption that more memory is better. We fight forgetting tooth and nail. My research focuses on pathological forgetting. What we're talking about here is not the, the, the forgetting that occurs, occurs in disease and in aging. We're talking about the normal forgetting that we're all born with, occurs naturally, uh, and just exists in nature. And yet that's the kind of forgetting that people tend to complain about. Uh, and the book basically... Uh, is organized into 
the perhaps more intuitive parts of where we need to forget some emotions to live better lives, happier lives. Perhaps the less intuitive, maybe more interesting parts is how we need forgetting to also think better and actually be smarter and to be more creative. Now, let's let's help our listeners understand. So tell us, what are the areas of the brain most associated with memory and forgetting? Yes. So I, I could depict a map, as I do in the book. It's a simple map made up of three uh, geographical regions or brain regions. It's simple, but like all maps, it's actually helpful to navigate. And it's not too simple. In other words, I use the same map on neurologists. So basically, there are three primary, primary regions of the brain. Obviously, memory is complicated. All the brains involved. Three main hubs. Uh, and, uh, you know, the perfect analogy is our computer, our personal computers. If you were to type something on your screen right now, Susan, and you wanted to save that into your hard drive, you would use the click save function. Our brain is endowed with a structure that does that. It's called the hippocampus. If you then come back tomorrow and want to open up and retrieve that file, right? You do the click open or search on your computer. In our brains, that's focused primarily in another part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex that's right behind our foreheads. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, one thing you say that I think is so interesting is that forgetting is not just a failure of remembering, it's a separate gift with its own toolbox. That's right. So, what I just described is really the, um, the blueprint of the engineering miracle called our brains. Uh, if you really want to understand the bits of the computer, like the, uh, the bits of our computer, like the bits in an in, in a actual um, computer, you need to kind of bore deeper into the neurons. And basically, what we've known for 50 years, what my mentor, Eric Kendall, won his Nobel Prize for, is identifying particular mechanisms, which we can call nanomachines, little machines in our neurons that very carefully construct our memories. That's what we've known for 50 years. And it's always been assumed, Susan, that the... um, that forgetting is basically a rusting of those nanomachines. It's a failure of those memory mechanisms. And only in the last 10 years, this is the new science of forgetting, have scientists uncovered a completely separate group of mechanisms, different nanomachines, that their role is to carefully disassemble memories, to forget. Mm -hmm. So now we know that there are two toolboxes Uh, a term used loosely, one dedicated to normal memory, one dedicated to forgetting, and they need to work in unison to to really uh, allow our brains to navigate through our lives. So let me give an example, and you correct me if it doesn't fit. One of the things you say in the book is that given how new situations change the routines in our lives, we have to constantly be able to adapt because And as a result, we have to forget. So I don't know about you, but every time I get my cell phone situation automatic for me, they update it. And once they update it, based on what I've read now, it's good that I can forget the original way I did it. Because if I couldn't forget the original way that had become almost implicit memory, I guess, 
um, I wouldn't be able to use the new activated system in my cell phone. Is that what that's we're a great, talking about? That's a great analogy. That's why I love doing these uh, these chats because uh, that's one I hadn't considered, but it's pitch perfect. And 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 basically, the analogy I give in the in the book is you know think of home remodeling, right? If you wanted an, a, a, a another room in your home, you can just tack on new rooms. But the more elegant way to do it is to first demolish, perhaps, the <laughs> older part of the house and then build on top of that. And that turns out to be absolutely spot on, as you were describing. If you want to if, if remember a, uh, a new memory from scratch, how to drive to uh, a, a new restaurant, or if you have a new job, you have to learn that route, you absolutely need your memory. But on the point that you need memory sculpted by forgetting. If I now were to insert a detour, right, a, uh, with all the hurricanes, at least here, a, a, a tree falls, you need to take a detour. To learn that detour, you can think, well, maybe I just need more memory, tack on more memory. It turns out the fastest and most efficient way to learn that detour is to first sculpt down those original memories mm-hmm. with our forgetting mm-hmm. toolbox. And on top of that, to then um, learn the new route. So that's, that's a perfect example on how memory and forgetting work in balance to enhance our uh, thinking. The other thing that I think folks might be interested in is you had mentioned that with autism, there's often a kind of perfect forgetting or insistence on things being exactly the way, let's say, the youngster remembered them. And their difficulty with that is that life isn't like that. So that I was speaking to a teacher and she said, yes, it's true. We would try to keep everything the same so that there wouldn't be disruption and it wouldn't be difficult for those children in the class who who were more challenged. Um, So that's another example, Scott, you correct me, for the need for brain flexibility, as you say, to see nuance, to be able to see that, oh, he looks like Johnny, but it's definitely not Johnny. That's Jack. So to be able to actually forget enough to to actually have nuance in your life, or to be be able to perceive nuance. Yes, that's exactly right, and that maybe is the most um, unintuitive example of why we need our forgetting. It's un, it's not clearly intuitive because it's something we do all the time. In other right. words. We, we all could see our friend, our spouse, ourselves in the mirror in the morning. And when we see that person in the evening, <laughs> our brain actually sees someone different, a little bit different. Maybe uh, unshaven definitely beard, different. maybe a hat. <laughs> yeah. M- maybe, 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 well, not maybe, definitely different lighting. So, so if, if you were to take a snapshot, which you're particular parts of your visual cortex does, your brain might say different person, yet the brain knows how to, uh, because of the benefits of forgetting, knows how to generalize. The ability to generalize is so fundamental to our world. It's the ability to see the forest from the trees, Mm -hmm. to get Mm -hmm. a gist. And that gist thinking requires that we don't perseverate over details. We don't get sticky on the details we are, we are able to extract these holes. And in fact, the seminal paper written by the father of uh, child psychiatry, the doctor who introduced the term autism in the 1950s, that was his title. 
the autistic child who can't see the whole from the parts. Mm-hmm. One quickly, quick thing I may, I may, uh, if I may quickly add, when we talk about autism, we have to be careful. Autism, you know, is not a single uh, right. disorder. Many people think it's not a disorder at all. It's just diversity. I'm very respectful of that. And mm-hmm. I had a guide in that chapter who's a leader in the field. Uh, but the interesting thing about uh, what we know about people with autism is that part of that memory toolbox that allows us to forget is not always working well. And so in retrospect, we can begin to explain what Leo Kanner, the doctor Mm -hmm. who described autism, was observing, and what many people with autism report and families who have autistic family members uh, report, that they really are uncomfortable or anxious in novel situations. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they are is because their brain, their brain sees everything as novel, and that would be anxiety-provoking, I think, to any of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, great point we, to talk about the spectrum with that, too. Very, thank you. That's yes, great. Yes, exactly. Yep, we so, have to emphasize and be respectful of that. Mm. So let's now talk about uh, an important part of the book, one that I found fascinating, was let's talk about memory and forgetting in the face of danger and trauma. And the idea that one thing you say is a traumatic event can impair the normal balance between emotional memory and emotional forgetting. Right. And so um, I think it's obvious to live in our, our world. Our world is dangerous. It's maybe not always physically dangerous, but speak to any junior high school. It's socially full of, uh, of uh, landmines. Uh, we need to learn to stay away from pain. That's memory, absolutely needed. But the balance is needed when a painful memory burns too hot and prevents us from living healthy lives. And in that case, we have a classic disorder, a very sad disorder that's sadly increasing in, um, in, in prevalence, and that's PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder is basically a disorder where the person can't shake those fear memories. Shaking memories is just another colloquial term for forgetting. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a really interesting uh, observation. And in fact, the, 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 the field of PTSD is tapping in to the new science of forgetting to learn how to funnel that insight into perhaps developing better therapies for PTSD. So let's take a step back for our listeners and maybe let's explain what exactly happens in a dangerous situation in terms of the HPA access. And people know a little bit about cortisol and adrenaline. Let's talk about that a little and the amygdala so that we can then talk about how we tone it down. Yes. And, and you're right, we're, we're lucky uh, that the field, not me, I didn't do any of this research, but the field has really made seminal breakthroughs in clarifying all that. Adrenaline cortisol, that was described 100 years ago. It was already known to be something that mediates our fear memories and our fear responses, fight, flight and fight, all that. Um, but what was clarified in the, uh, a, a few decades ago is that a lot of that is mediated 
by a, a part of our brain called the amygdala. It's a small little structure. It's called the amygdala because it's almond-shaped, and that's the limits of my Latin. <laughs> but that is why it's called uh, the amygdala. Um, but then only in the last 10 years have really elegant science clarified that the amygdala is not just sort of involved in our fear memories. It's actually the storage site of our, mem- of our fear okay. memories. So it's I'm sort of the st- hard drive equivalent of where we store our, mem- our fear memories, our fear Scott, memories, specifically Scott, okay, those. I apologize. This is too important a point to, to rush through. I just got the sign that we're going to take a break. So let's take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Scott Small. We're talking about the benefits of forgetting across many, many different aspects of our coping and our neurological structures. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We're talking about the amygdala trauma. Really important. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you looking for a happy lifestyle? Now that's a crazy question, isn't it? Everyone wants to be happy, but we struggle in trying to figure out how to get there. Want help with that? Then tune in to Say Yes, Be Happy with Natalie Botros. Find out about the Bon Vivant Girl lifestyle and learn how to enjoy every aspect of life and be happy. Say yes, be happy. Listen live every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Scott Small, esteemed neurologist and neuroscientist, and we were just beginning to speak about the amygdala and its role in terms of it's the, it's the engine that drives fear and rage. It's very connected with traumatic events. So tell us a little bit about 
how the amygdala functions and what has to happen for us to not remain in a traumatized, dysregulated state. Yeah. So, you know, we all, all words are metaphors. You said engine. I'll use that because I use it in the book, and I think it's very, it's very useful here. In this case, we have an accelerator. We have a braking system. I think we intuitively know that we need both to navigate a road in kind. We need memory. We need forgetting to navigate life. In the case of fear memory, the engine is actually the amygdala, a small area of the brain. We've known for many years that it is involved with forming fear memories, but only in the last 10 years has the new science of forgetting clarified that it's in the amygdala that uh, our fear memories are stored. At least it's the hub of the storage of fear memories. (laughs) And so what that means is that If your engine is revved up, if your amygdala is just firing too too aggressively, you're going to, your mind is going to be deluged with fear memories. It will ultimately prevent you from functioning, and that's when it becomes a disorder, PTSD. Even before it becomes a disorder, when your fear memories are on overdrive, out of control, it can make you uh, rageful angry, vengeful, and antisocial, all the characters that we tend not to like in people. And Mm -hmm. so it raises an interesting question. Are there ways of turning that engine down? Now, one of the interesting uh, observations to come out of the new science is that there actually have been ways that most of us or many of us have experienced. And I have to be careful here because I'm a, a licensed physician, but if anyone has taken that first sip of alcohol, not many sips later, not many glasses, and you feel that sort of relaxation, that pro-social sensibility, you're feeling more friendly, you're feeling more compassionate, maybe lovelier, that in part occurs because your amygdala is being turned down and your fear memories are, uh, uh, are, are slowed to a certain extent. Uh, another drug, because after all, alcohol is a drug, another drug, one that's illicit, uh, but used uh, um, recreationally and now being tested in clinical trials is MDMA. MDMA is otherwise known as ecstasy. And the reason it's called ecstasy is because when you listen to the descriptions of people who've taken MDMA, it's exactly that. It's so altruistic, compassionate, more loving. And part of that experience that apparently is ecstatic is because you're turning down your fear of memory. Mm-hmm. Now, you also speak about Xanax, Ativan, as decelerators of the amygdala activity. Yes, and that's, if you think about it, uh, the term we use, we call them anxiolytics because they Mm -hmm. cut out anxiety, as you well know. Um, And if you think of anxiety, if you think of Edvard Munch's The Scream, that's a mind that's racing often with too many anxiety-provoking memories. Uh, those drugs do many other things, so we can't simplify. And in general, we should be careful of oversimplification. But part of why those uh, benzodiazepines uh, remove anxiety is because they turn down, they decelerate this engine that stores our fear memories. 
You know, this whole idea of seeing it as uh, an engine that has to be really toned down or the brakes have to be put on starts to make make many things make sense. And it was re- in a recent military psychology journal. It just happened that I looked at it as I was reading the book. Um, they they were discussing um, what is the role of personality or tendency to negative urgency with alcohol use. And the group, Scott, that had the highest alcohol use were those struggling with negative urgency, the tendency to act rationally. Mm. When and so I thought, oh, doesn't this make sense? And it, it's what's so valuable about your book is that it starts to give you these aha moments that I think become very helpful for people in understanding. So that's why I keep doing it. Maybe there's another way to tone this down, um, which brings me to everyone talks about oxytocin and the benefits but you actually are the one who's saying the amygdala is very sensitive to oxytocin. And so this is another option for tone down. Well, that's very interesting. Quickly, let me celebrate my colleagues. I'm reporting what my colleagues have, the work that others have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I read it, I've read that carefully. Many of them are, are in fact, friends and colleagues. Oxytocin is complicated like all hormones, but remember we talked about adrenaline and cortisol. It Mm -hmm. it was back in the early part of the previous century that the medical field was hormone obsessed. (laughs) And that's where most of the when most of the hormones were described. And oxytocin was described. It wasn't actually one of the famous ones, not certainly not as famous as cortisol and adrenaline because well, partly because it was just thought to be um, relevant to the maternal ward or to maternity, uh, and there are a lot of probably social reasons why that wasn't emphasized enough at the time. Certainly, that's an important topic. But what has emerged in the last couple of decades is that what oxyt- oxytocin is certainly released at high levels internally. It's an internal hormone uh, when a-, a woman gives birth, when when she's nursing, but it's also... Um, secreted into our brains whenever we socially interact, uh, whether it's social intercourse or physical intercourse, anything that we engage in sort of pro-social behavior seems to, even looking into the eyes of a dog, that's a really cool paper, uh, you have that warm sense of feeling for those dog lovers out there. That is partly because your brain is releasing oxytocin and what oxytocin does is it turns down that fear memory engine. And so it raises a really interesting question, and I pose it as, as an idea that's very plausible. If you think about it, if you think about a child entering kindergarten, hopefully soon this year, um, right. it's scary. And every reason to be fearful, and often it's right, but to create uh, social connections, you need to turn down that fear engine because if you don't, you might miss out on creating close friendships, uh, social interactions. And so one of the ideas, again, it's an idea, is that one of the reasons why we are endowed with oxytocin is to really counterbalance the fear engine, which is mm-hmm. often important for our survival, but socializing is just as important. And so, again, another example of where you need the balance of memory and forgetting. 
One of one of the very interesting parts of your book is when you describe your post, or actually, it's sort of in between being um, ending your military career, but but you and a group are no longer in combat. And when you think of the question that you raised with your um, your expert in trauma, was why did we not get PTSD? And then you looked at. Well, we were a group, so we had the oxytocin yeah. of that connection. We were using alcohol here and there. We were then turning frightening situations into vignettes, which means taking charge of unspeakable moments and giving dialogue to them. And on and on, unwittingly, really doing a lot of therapeutic intervention after trauma, it's a wonderful part of the book that I, that I recommend people read. I, I really thought it was valuable. So let's go to memory and sleep and their connections with forgetting. Okay. Uh, well, one of the interesting things, uh, well, one of the mysteries, right? Uh, science, if, if I can convey the mystery and uh, excitement of scientific discovery, I've done a little bit of good because I still feel it 30 years late, late, later in my lab. But okay. it's very easy to engage a listener and say, you know, a third of your life, you do something that's required. You sleep. You do something that's actually evolutionarily dangerous, right? Because you're exposed to the world. We know why we need to eat to live. We know why we need to drink water to live. We actually need to sleep to live. Mm. And yet, it's remained a mystery. And so, here in this case, the, the answer, the, the early answer, came from one of the true luminaries in biology. And this is Francis Crick from mm -hmm. the Crick and Watson fame. In the early 60s, they make perhaps one of the greatest discoveries in the history of biology. They figure out the structure of DNA. Right. That's who they were. And he and I'm sort of kidding here. He says, well, that was easy. Let's turn my attention now <laughs> to the mystery of sleep and consciousness. And that's okay. what he worked on for the rest of his career. Okay. And he wrote this paper in 1983 where he basically proposed and it's anchored in some theory, but it was really just a thought piece that we sleep in order to smart forget. We need sleep to clean our slates of all the detritus of our daily lives, all the information that gets forced onto our cortex, into our minds, that is not really that important because after all, our minds are very sticky and likes, like to remember everything. We need to sleep to very carefully disassemble those memories uh, and clean the slate. And so that was a very interesting idea because it was him. It got a lot of interest. Probably if it was me, no one would pay attention. Uh, but his <laughs> students then had to wait 30 years or 40 years to really have the tools available to them to formally test that scientifically. And that just emerged in the last 10 years. So it's factually true. When we sleep, most of the memories that are, fo are formed throughout our day get de disassembled. Not all of them. Some of them stay topiary-like memory be sharper, but most of the information that's really not that helpful is uh, forgotten by the active process of sleep. So that's why when you say in order to forget, you need a night's sleep, 
the overload without the night's sleep is really problematic. At its extreme, we're going to end up with distorted thinking, perhaps even hallucinations. But my first association, Scott, was I used to tell my doctoral students when we used to deal with dreaming and the the topic was you you needed the dream you had last night was that the myth about the all-nighter. We've all done it. Some of us claim we've done it well, but actually you cannot continue to not sleep and function, remember, and perform okay in a test. I mean, this this sort of clearly explains that. That is so completely true. And as you know, uh, you know, when I trained as a young trainee, there was this sort of macho, macho thing of staying the whole night or two days in the ICU. Um, And that's been done away with, not just because, you know, HR got on the hospital's case and said that's torturing these poor young kids. It's because we were we were not good doctors, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and so, you know, sometimes when people don't, you know, they want examples of why is forgetting beneficial, I some, some, somewhat humoristically say, well, stay up two, day, two nights, tell me how you feel. Do you feel staticky? <laughs> Do you feel like you can't focus? That's because your brain is full of too much memories that have not been forgotten. It's a great way, you know, it's like um, the easiest way to explain the need for eating is to starve. The easiest way to understand the need for forgetting is to be sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's well said, well said. So it also, I think you also suggest that creativity, you really get um, a benefit from sleeping and loosening the links, you say. Yeah, and if if I may, that was the most interesting chapter. And when I say interesting, not as a reader, but as a writer, because this is mm-hmm. all new to me, and I really spend a it's, lot of time pouring over the, the new literature, talking in this case with Jasper Johns, the great American artist. And it, 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 creativity is something that we're all proud of. Creativity is not just with artists, but all walks of life. There are people who are more or less creative. Uh, uh, creative creativity, I think, is the distinguishing feature in those slightly annoying books that try to say, well, what unifies all Nobel Prize winners? I don't like them. But basically, it's not better memory, not more IQ. It's having a creative mind. So what is great creativity? Why do we need forgetting? Well, it turns out, at least from the prominent literature on this topic, Creativity requires two things. It requires us to immerse our mind with information and associations first, so it's not like out of the blue. But then what distinguishes the creative person is that those associations remain loose and playful enough Mm -hmm. for that eureka moment when you make that unexpected association. So that looseness and playfulness requires our, our, our forgetting toolbox or forgetting so, um, you know, one of, the, one of the real joys of writing this book is that I've subsequently been told of many quotes. So Emerson had this great quote where he says, imagination is the mind's morning, memory is its evening. And I think mm-hmm. that's actually true. Most artists, most creative types say that they are much more productive and creative in the morning. It's funny. My association to it personally was that it's when I'm not trying to think. Let's say I'm jogging, and I guess thinking is looser or links are looser. That's when something pops up. 
<laughs> you, I just, you just don't know when it's going to happen, but it's definitely not when you're exhausted at the end of the day. It's not, and I can tell you for sure, if your associations were stapled with steel, which is what we sometimes secretly hopeful, that's the photographic memory we all want to have, you would not be creative, whether you're running, whether you're sleep-deprived or not. Mm. Your mind needs to keep those associations loose, and that looseness requires the forgetting mechanism. Now, we're going to go to what's very important, what I think a lot of our listeners are going to want to hear about, and that is cognitive aging and Alzheimer's disease. The difference, the fact that this whole area, as you describe in the book, was neglected for quite a while, and... um, the incorrect assumption, and I want you to expand on it, that any mild worsening in the hippocampal deepened memory was considered early stages of Alzheimer's disease. You did not believe that was true. Yeah, so it's interesting with Alzheimer's, there's been a sort of pendulum. Al was Alzheimer's, the Bavarian neuropathologist uh, who's, who, who now has a, the disease named after Scott, him in 19... 19- Scott, Scott, hold this. Is, I have to apologize. So I just got the song. We have to take a break, which will be fine because then we'll come back on the other side okay. and really dive okay. into Alzheimer's um, and cognitive aging. You've been listening to Psych okay. Up Live. We're so privileged to have with us Dr. Scott Small. He's the esteemed neurologist and neuroscience known for his work in Alzheimer's disease and cognitive aging. He's the author of a fabulous new book, Forgetting the Benefits of Remembering. Stay with us. Much more to come. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you looking for ways to make your business and your life better? Maybe it's time to think outside the box. Host Elsa Palmer Odin and her guests help you to rethink the way you approach challenges and strategies to get yourself on the right track. It's about business, it's about investing, it's about personal assistance and automation. But most importantly, it's about taking control of your life for the better. Outside the Box with Elsa can be heard Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. You're listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with esteemed neurologist and neuroscientist, Dr. Scott Small, and we're just about to talk about the difference between cognitive aging and Alzheimer's disease and the position that you took different from many, um, Scott, in 2001. Yeah. So um, this is also a good opportunity, perhaps, to remind your listeners that what I, my, my research is on pathological forgetting. That's different than what the book is about, which is really about normal forgetting, what we're all born with and that occurs naturally. Now, by necessity, I do talk a lot about pathological forgetting because it acts as a nice contrast. So the, the history of Alzheimer's, which, of course, begins when Al was Alzheimer's, uh, the Bavarian neuropathologist publishes his landmark paper in 1908, and the disease is named after him, has a pendulum swing. So when he first described it, it was called Alzheimer's, labeled Alzheimer's, but if you were to look at any textbook in medicine, psychiatry, neurology, into the 1960s, you would find no mention of Alzheimer's. And the main reason is because at the time, People thought that Alzheimer's disease, what Alzheimer's described, was really just confined to a very, very rare form of dementia that affected relatively other people. Now, people knew that as we age, we, we develop memory loss sometimes and worse, dementia, but that was called senility. And senility was thought to be very, very different. Uh, and it was thought to be mainly associated with aging, like hardening of the arteries. But then the pendulum overswung in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s when people suddenly realized that what we were calling senility and what Alzheimer's observed in his case studies in 1908 were one and the same. And Mm. then what happened is that any person above the age of 50 or 60 who started developing the beginnings of memory loss, people thought, aha, they must have Alzheimer's. It's not aging. And so what... Uh, what, I, what, the, what I contributed to at the turn of this century was a group of investigators who made the assumption that there probably are two entities that cause pathological forgetting in our later years. One is certainly Alzheimer's disease, uh, but the other is just the normal wear and tear of the aging process. So I just turned 60. I'm wearing reading glasses now. That's normal age-related visual loss. I don't have an eye disorder or glaucoma. It's just the normal wear and tear that causes something we call presbyopia. In kind, aging itself, without any disease, will affect the hippocampus and cause a relatively minor or mild, but to some people, very disturbing uh, memory loss. And that was the first patient in my um, in my book. So now we know, and I think the field generally acknowledges, that there is Alzheimer's and then there's aging. And clinically what that means is that when we're presented with someone who has mild forgetfulness, we have to make the distinction. Uh, and that's what we do. 
Alzheimer's progresses, and when it progresses and it becomes more profound, it's not, there's no diagnostic dilemma, but it's in those earliest stages that we have to try to dissociate one from the other. And to do that, are we talking about the biomarker that you find as a result of a spinal tap? Do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, of course. And now I'm, I'm delighted to, again, celebrate my field uh, and many other investigators, not me. Um, so we, we showed that they, there must be separate conditions, aging and Alzheimer's, by showing that two parts of the hippocampus, we talked about the hippocampus, it's actually ma- it's made up, of, it's like an archipelago made up of different islands, different brain regions. We showed that aging targets one area, but not the other. Alzheimer's talk to targets that other area and not the one associated with aging. So if different brain areas are involved, even though they're neighbors, they must be uh, caused by, have different etiologies, and that's turning out to be the case. It used to be difficult to make that dis- dissociation, and when my patient, Carl, who I dedicate the book to, saw me, uh, I guess almost 15 years ago, uh, it was hard. We had to rely on uh, memory tests and, and just tracking him over time. Now, thanks to the biomarker field in Alzheimer's, which is completely transformative, it's a lot easier because at the time there was no um, biomarker, blood tests or tests of, in, a, in a spinal fluid uh, that would tell me if someone clearly has Alzheimer's. Now those biomarkers exist. They're not completely perfect yet, but they're already in clinical practice. Most of my colleagues, when they're presented with a person who they're not clear if they have Alzheimer's or not, will order a spinal tap and maybe soon a blood test, maybe some imaging studies, and we can be pretty certain that a person has the earliest stages of Alzheimer's or not. And so um, as the, the functional MRI, is that one of your discoveries, and is that used in this? So the, the functional, I did not discover functional MRI. What I did is I uh, stood on the shoulders of giants, and I mm-hmm. optimized the tools that were developed in the late 1990s, functional MRI, to be appropriate for my question. Basically, most functional MRI tools don't have very high spatial resolution or just think of, you know, a satellite that can really, that can distinguish two countries but not two cities within a country. What we developed in my early career was a way to improve that resolution. And that was important for making the distinction between Alzheimer's and aging. It is not, however, a diagnostic tool. It, some people okay. use it, but I actually think it's a little bit noisy for clinical practice. So then the question becomes interpersonally, and I think it's raised at the end by, or you propose, you propose that maybe this is what your patient would say. So once a person knows that they seem to have the biomarker for Alzheimer disease, where do they go from there? Do they wait and drain? Yeah. What's the next step? Well, you know, that's a, that's a very, very profound question. And, and one... Um, saddled with sadness because the simple truth is that there currently are no meaningful treatments. By meaningful, I mean drugs, you know, like the vaccine, like maybe for diabetes that will make meaningful differences. We prescribe drugs and we're hopeful that they have some mild benefit, but not that we all know that when the real drug will be found in the future, the, the current crop of drugs will be 
buried in the history in in the in, in the in the um, books of history. The two things I'll say though, um, and I'm not by nature an optimist, so I'm not just trying to silver line us with anything. One is um, what I do a lot in my clinical practice is I end up being a, an educator, not so much a drug pusher, because I don't have drugs to give. And it turns out that many people and patients are grateful for learning that, you know, I now have early, early Alzheimer's. It's certainly sad, but I now know from talking with me or other doctors like me that it's not an immediate death sentence. It's not necessarily game over immediately. Uh, That's maybe not the ideal thing to say, but at least helps them understand that they can live their lives. And one of the things that my patients have taught me, and they've taught me a lot, is, you know, most of us go go around saying, and I, I quote my, you know, people who have told me this in social settings, they hear what I do, you know, we're out to dinner, they turn to me, they say, well, if I ever have Alzheimer's, just shoot me, right? Live dinner conversation, maybe a little too much alcohol, but they say that, and I think people mm-hmm. sometimes really mean that. My mm-hmm. patients have taught me that they are do not want to die in the early stages of Alzheimer's. Clearly at the end stage, it is horrible. No one should minimize it. But I have many patients who have taught me that we tend to over-index the importance of information, of memories, because they live their lives with family, with art, with literature, mm-hmm. and they're not suffering. Now, mm-hmm. the future is a time bomb. And so that's why I dedicate most of my time to trying to dismantle that time bomb with medications. We're not there yet, but the field hopes to get there. Mm. Well, you know, it bears on the question that we all only have and live one day at a time. So um, I understand what you're saying is very important. Patients who knew I was going to do this show asked me to ask if their parent or a parent had had Alzheimer's. Does that definitely mean that they are quite likely to have it in their future? It's a great question. I think I touch on that in in one of the chapters because it is on everyone's mind. It's an excellent question. After all, most of my patients are parents, grandparents, and most of them care about their kids. (laughs) And that's the real worry. Um, So we talked about that rare form of Alzheimer's that Alwa's Alzheimer's described. That form, which typically presents in someone's 30s, 40s, maybe 50s, that's a very rare form of Alzheimer's that is a simple genetic disorder. If your parent has it, you have a 50% chance of having it, and we can test for the gene. But the vast majority, 99% of all Alzheimer's, is not that form. It's what we call the complex form, which means that genes play a role, but many genes play a role. The environment plays a role. And so the analogy I give is a sort of teetering balance. If, in, in a simple genetic disorder, if you have the gene, it's like a, like a lead rock on one arm of the balance and tilts you to definitely getting the, the disease. In complex disorders, you have to think of a hundred small tiny pebbles on either side of that teetering balance. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. increase, decrease risk. Some, uh, it's maybe 10 genes. It could be the environment. It could be the interaction of both. The bottom line is, if your parents have the complex form, it tilts your balance, but it doesn't determine your balance. And that's, I think, the way to think of it. 
That's a, that's a great answer. So I I want to thank you, and I want to ask you, how would any of our listeners who wanted to contact you do that, and how would they read your book, and where can they get your book? Well, the, the, the book is called Forgetting, The Benefits of Not Remembering. It's available um, online, Amazon, all the, book, all the online bookstores. Uh, I'm told by my publisher it's available in actual bookstores. I've seen it. Um, uh, it, it's published by Crown, which is an imprint of Random House. Uh, I, I hope that's enough information if you're inclined to, to take a listen, because you can also listen to it on Audible. Um, but, uh, if you want to reach me, I, you know, I take my, um, professorship seriously, by which I mean, my salary comes from your listeners if they're taxpayers. My salary comes from the NIH, which is funded by taxpayers' money. And if anyone has any questions to me, reach out. Appreciate that I'm busy, but I try to respond to all questions, certainly about Alzheimer's and aging. And you can find my email on Columbia's website. You can uh, reach out to me through my publisher, but uh, I am open to offer advice. That's wonderful. So if you had to give us a very quick take-home message. Of the book. Of the book or anything that you shared yeah. today because it was incredible. Well, I, I, if I may, um, I think with the book, I'm not by nature, um, it's not my style to, uh, to, 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 to say, you know, celebrate your foibles. Uh, but the book, when, when written by me and then read by others, I hope, there's a sense of, oh, my, I've been really battling and complaining about my normal forgetting. Oh, my, I've been always jealous of that person who could remember everything. In fact, it's not a glitch in your system. It's the perfect uh, the perfect system to live our lives. So I think that might take the onus off a little bit. Uh, on Alzheimer's, I would say that I am that we've shifted in the field has shifted into legitimate cautious optimism because we now fundamentally know what's broken. The mechanics cliche is right. You can't fix something unless you know what's broken. That's why I think there's reasons to be optimistic and to stay tuned. Okay, I I can't thank you enough. Um, Dr. Small for coming on. The book is wonderful. I encourage people to read it and to reach out to you. Um, I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior shows, a podcast on my host site, my website, and on every platform, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon, you name it, it's going to be there. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.